0: Heavenly Father, we are truly grateful for this privilege today to begin to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ from all across the city, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of churches and denominations, but with one heart and purpose, and that is to see your name exalted and your kingdom come and churches planted and souls saved right here in our city. Thank you for this great opportunity in the great mission field that has come to us here in Houston. And thank you for these church planters and pastors and ministry leaders who are embracing a vision to plant many, many more gospel-centered churches right here in greater Houston. We pray over this crowd and over those that they represent and just pray that your spirit will empower a mighty movement of church planning here in our city. Bless our church planters and the difficult work uh, that many of them are facing the uh, challenges. Uh, I pray a blessing of provision of encouragement when they're discouraged. I thank you for sending leadership and uh, resources of all kinds. Lord, we know you have supplied our needs and will supply our needs according to your riches and glory. And thank you that there's nothing that you will or ever have called us to that you wouldn't resource and supply the needs for. So thank you for meeting our needs and supplying all that we need as we seek to advance your kingdom and share the gospel right here in the city of Houston, we pray for a mighty outcome that we might give you honor, glory, and praise in all that you do, and that's our purpose, and we thank you for it. Bless our time together for the remainder of our day. Thank you for Mark and his contribution and investment in our lives, and we're so grateful to be able to learn something today that really will impact our lives. Bless our time, we ask, and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before Mark comes, uh, if you weren't here for the earlier session, I want to tell you a little bit about Mark DeMoss. Uh, I have a bit of a, a personal in investment in this introduction because 10 years ago when God called me and my family to Houston, uh, one of the first things I did was look at the demographics of our community and recognize a transitioning community growing in diversity, and I felt called to that. Uh, so I talked with the search committee that invited me to come and asked if not only would I have their permission, because you do need that before you come, uh, would I have their support to reach the entire community and to be very intentional and strategic in reflecting the community in order to reach that community for Christ. And they assured me uh, that they had not only, uh, I had their permission, but also their support. And thank God that turned out to be a a true commitment on their part. So I had a vision for reaching the entire community and reflecting that diversity, but I didn't know how. I'd never pastored a multicultural church. I'd never transitioned to church to a multicultural strategy and approach. So with the vision, I needed some instruction and some direction, and I wanted to learn from somebody who had uh, gone down that road before. So I did what you would do. I hit Google and said, uh, help. And I came across two books uh, at that time, uh, one called Ethnic Blends. It's now called Leading a Healthy Multiethnic Church, and the other, Building a Healthy Multiethnic Church, both by Dr. Mark Dimas, who you'll hear from in just a moment. And these books became for us really a, a map, I would say, uh, to how to transition a predominantly white church, predominantly one socioeconomic uh, strata to a multi-denomina- or multi-denominational, that's not what we did, to a multi-ethnic and uh, very diverse economic kind of uh, congregation. And, uh, and so it was an, in very, very helpful. And uh, we had the chance to hang out with him yesterday at Champion Forest Baptist Church and. Uh, he's done what he's doing his whole life. Uh, this is a part of who he is, not just what he does or what he says. Um, but uh, he's planted a church in Little Rock, Arkansas. He's been at that particular work about 15 years, a multi-ethnic church that's really making a huge impact in a great area of need in Little Rock. And we're just really honored, blessed, and thrilled to have him here. And I would say this is that his voice is not only informative and instructional, which is why I turned to him and his writings uh, 10 years ago, but lately I think God has given him favor with regard to a prophetic voice. I think he's speaking into the church some things we desperately need to hear, and I can't wait for the book to drop on March the 7th uh, that he spoke about in our first session called Disruption. Maybe you'll give us a little preview on that while you have a moment, but I think that book is going to really be important uh, as we rethink how we do what we do in a new day and time and in a new nation because this nation is a a new country. And that's changing every day. So I'm thrilled to be able to introduce and glad to be able to sit and listen with you to Dr. Mark DeMaz. Would you welcome him today?
1: Thank you, brother. Thanks, David. Good afternoon. I uh, shared with the first group that I'm I'm truly honored to be um, here uh, this afternoon and with you this morning and and later on with HCPN. Um, It's true. And I know like maybe a half of you are here, so... A few things will be the same, but I want to start by saying this. Wherever I go in the country, uh, from you know, Exponential and the conferences like that to Catalyst or, or to different denominations network, uh, everywhere I go when people bring up the subject of church planning, they're talking about HCPN, what you're doing here, the great leadership of, of Chad, who had a chance to meet today, Micah, his, his, his wonderful uh, sidekick, but you guys are really, and gals, ladies... Making a big difference. You're, what you're doing here is impacting the country. Other people thinking about doing this, trying to export this idea. So, uh, just hats off to Chad and to Micah, and for all the people working here. What you guys are coming together, to doing the church is working together. So, anyway, way to go. Um, you know, uh, David spoke of calling. I thought just briefly. Uh, I would just share uh, a little bit about my story. I um, was raised Jesuit Catholic, single parent home, born out of wedlock, 1961. I have a Hispanic last name, but I'm actually white. Italian and Russian Jew. I was born out of wedlock, latchkey kid before the term was coined, etc. Uh, But raised Jesuit Catholic on a work scholarship in a a prep school in Phoenix. So I had to work my way. I started selling Avon at seven and worked my way through the rectories to help pay for school. And I was a dishwasher at the Playboy Club at 13. And it goes up from there, fortunately. But uh, all that's to say is that I, I played college baseball. I ended up at Liberty University. So I went from a Jesuit prep school environment to moral majority Jerry Falwell in 1981. I mean, that was a big big swing, too slow to get drafted. Uh, they said I ran like I had a piano on my back. I went to four college world series, but I couldn't run to save my life. In fact, uh, in my sophomore season, I was fourth in the country in doubles. I hit like 22 doubles or 23 uh, doubles that season. Um, but the the big joke was 15 should have been triples, right? So it uh, <laughs> tells you how slow I was. And, uh, But uh, I had nothing to better do when I got out of college. Uh, uh, I was expecting to play uh, baseball, didn't. A church that I had began attending in in junior college, a a conservative Baptist church in Scottsdale, where I'm from, Arizona, uh, they asked me to be the high school pastor. I didn't know you could get paid for that stuff, but I ended up a high school pastor. That led to an 18-year career in student ministries. The final eight of those from 1993 to 01 brought me to Little Rock, Arkansas, in a large church there, a great church. I wouldn't even be who I was today without my eight years there. Before that, my first 10 years in ministry, I was like a raging river. Uh, that church put a dam on me. And so, you know, it's important to get more power and more effect in the Saudis. So a wonderful time in that church, those eight years, uh, youth ministry, you know, from 150 to 600. We had ended up with nine full-time staff for seventh through 12th grade kids, three and a half million dollar student center. Uh, 250 volunteers. It was an amazing season of ministry in uh, student ministries. But living in the South, as I did, got there in 93. By 96 or so, I began to, to feel um, and to understand a little bit more of the South, and, and I was bothered by that. Now, there's racism all over the country, as we know. And, and having lived in different parts of the country like you have, it, it manifests itself, doesn't it, in different parts of the country. So it's always there, But some places it just manifests itself differently. And so living in the American South, in Little Rock for several years, I began to get in touch and and to feel that in the community and some of the conflict and the noise and the discussion in the community. But I was in a large church. It grew to 5,000 white Republicans, suburbanites, et cetera, otherwise aggregating good and and, and very nationally known and, and incredible ministry. But by 96 or so, 97, it began to bother me that in this church, otherwise of 5,000 wonderful people who love God, advance in the gospel, etc., that the only minorities in the church essentially were janitors. And, and somehow that began to bother my spirit. I didn't know exactly know why that bothered me, but in a town of about 43% African American or so at the time, the fact that there were 5,000 people worshiping and the people who cleaned up after them were all essentially black janitors African Americans—that uh, began to bother my spirit. Something's not right about that, but I didn't know what it was. I had a master's degree in exegesis at the time. Today, I have a doctorate in exegesis, but essentially, that forced me to the New Testament and to study the true nature of the New Testament church beyond what I'd been taught in seminary, what you read in the commentaries, etc. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. But all that landed me in um, a hairstylist chair in um, late 2000. Uh, her name's Precious Williams, African American woman, cut my hair for 20 years. I knew her well, and I was reflecting in that moment on the lack of diversity in the local church in Little Rock, Arkansas. There were black churches, white churches, a handful of Hispanic churches rising here and there, a Korean church, but essentially all segregated uh, by race, class, and culture. And, and I was just reflecting on that one day in her chair. And so she had grown up in the South in and, and Little Rock, and so I, I just threw out a question. I, I wasn't thinking me. I, wasn't, I, I was just contemplating this whole uh, space, and I said, Precious, do you think— there's a need for a church in Little Rock, Arkansas, where black and white people could worship God together as one. And, and it was really just a theoretical question. And she said, oh, yes, Mark, there's such a need for that. And she began to share some of her story of growing up. And I was listening into some of the pain and the heartache that she felt as an African-American woman growing up in the American South, and particularly her interactions with church, the segregation, et cetera. And I was just listening. And at some point, I laid my head back. You know, when they're doing your hair and they're cutting it. And every now and then, you kind of get a little sleepy and like zoning out. But I was reflecting on what she's saying. I kind of had my head back like this, my eyes closed. And all of a sudden, she said to me this. She said, Mark, do you ever think it could happen here? And the second she said that, I experienced two things physically in my body. The first thing was this major rush of fear and fright and heat that ran from the top of my head out through the bottom of my shoes in an instant like that, the same kind of fright or fear. I bet you've experienced that before, right? When you been, someone scares you in the dark and you just, your whole body just seizes up and you feel that, that heat and that fear, right? That happened to me. She didn't yell. Or she can just mark. Do you ever think it happened? I just felt this huge rush of fright and fear and heat surge through my body. And the second thing I experienced is while she said, Mark, do you ever think it could happen here? What I heard in my spirit was the spirit of God say, Mark, would you stay here in Little Rock and do it here? Would you do this here? And, and I love what David said. It was a calling. It was my Macedonian moment. And I embraced that calling. And, and all of what I'm going to share, of course, in, in every church, co- common to every church are sets of problems, challenges, et cetera, overcome. But when you add the additional set of race, class, culture, it's like landmines. A total different set of landmines that gets added to all the other stuff that we deal with in church planning, growth, and development But at the root of the deal is I um, felt and heard that calling of God. I had no idea what I was getting into. You know what? Um, Don't you know, if God said, okay, here's where you're at today, and 16 years later, here's where you're going to be, and and this is what will happen, so do you want to do it? Every one of you, yeah, I'm not in. I'm not signing up for that. No way, no how, right? I mean, he would never do it. But all God shows us is what's in front of us today, right? And you take that like Hansel and Gretel, you just follow the breadcrumbs and one day you end up doing what God and right in the sweet spot where you're supposed to be. So that was the initiation of my journey to this and, and my calling right there in that, uh, that stylist chair that day when I heard the voice of God speak to me and said, Mark, would you be willing to do that here and uh, take the lead in the city of Little Rock? So all that's to say is I told you I had explored the New Testament. I was thinking things and I was ripe and ready. So on um, June 1st of 2001, I launched or set out on the pre- natal stage of that church we officially birthed in 2002 coming up on our official 15th anniversary but i've been at it almost 20 years in reflection 16 years doing it and all that's to say if i boiled the entire reflection down to a single question it would be this i i read christ's prayer being a good catholic recited every service etc our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done where on earth as it is in heaven And the single greatest question that drove me in those days was this. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? If God taught us to pray what's going on up there, ought to be going on down here. And we know the kingdom of heaven is not segregated. Revelation 7, 9, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. It's not segregated there. And he taught us to pray what's here should be a reflection of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Why on earth the systemic segregation of the local church Today, 86.3% of churches fail to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. Churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're in, and 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. Surely it breaks the heart of God that so many churches, the vast majority of churches throughout this country, are segregated by race and class, and that little has changed in the now more than 100 years since it was first observed at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Brothers and sisters, as I said in the earlier hour, it should not be so. It should not be so. If you are in the first hour, a few of these slides will be repetitive to kind of bring everybody else into the, into the discussion and then we'll move on. So I'm not gonna give you the same talk, trust me. But setting up on that, more than bemoaning this fact of systemic segregation in the local church, in America and the statistics I just gave you, Um, we have a real disconnect between what we preach and the way it's being received in our community today. Uh, And the current reality is this. I've run Dave Olson with the Evangelical Covenant Church who studied more than 200,000 churches in around 2010 in the American Church Research Project, and he found this. Between 1990 and a time in American history in a 20-year period between 1990 and 2009, at a time when more than 56 million people became American citizens through birth or legal immigration, only 446,540 people, less than 1% of that number, became active members of a local church. And as I shared in the first hour, no one is listening. No one is listening to us because we have essentially undermined the very credibility of the gospel, of our witness, due to the systemic segregation of the local church. Stated in other ways, an increasingly diverse and cynical society is no longer finding the message of God's love for all people credible as preached from segregated pulpits and pews. It's just not believable in our society today. I shared a story about a woman looking into our church. You look into a different church, and and, and when diverse people look into a church and they see it segregated, what it translates for them is this, that the Egyptians have their gods, the Phoenicians have their gods, the Hittites have their gods, you white people have your god, you black people. That's the way they feel it. That's how it's being interpreted and it undermines the credibility of our witness, the very gospel itself. As I shared earlier as well, uh, sometimes you have people say, isn't the gospel enough? And I'm like, yes, if you preach the whole gospel. That's not the problem with the gospel, it's a problem with us, with our understanding and giving into what is easy, what we like, what is natural. Of course, it's easier to go to churches with people who are just like you, right? But where in the Bible do you get a pass on degree of difficulty? Of course, we like things the way we like them, the music, the language, of course. But where in the Bible is it about what you like, right? And when people say, well, it's more natural to be with our own kind. Well, you know, when I signed up for this Christian thing, I thought it was supposed to, it was about living in the supernatural, getting above and beyond what is otherwise natural. We need to think disruptively. The fact is, as I shared in the first hour, the New Testament church—every church in the New Testament, outside of Jerusalem—was what we would call today multi-ethnic, diverse men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich, poor, male, female, etc. Galatians three twenty-eight, walking, working, and worshiping God together as one, in local churches. And this more than their words, this more than their theology, this more than their witness in a spiritual sense—is what gave passion and credibility to their witness for God's love for all people. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, all men. So it was the walking, the working, the worshiping God together as one that advanced a credible witness. But today, particularly in the American West, we see it as theology, we see it as words. But, G- but Jesus said in Matthew five sixteen, let your light so shine that they hear your good words and they'll fall in love with Jesus, right? No, let your good works, right? Shine a light on who he is and draw people to himself. And we'll dive deeper into this uh, later on uh, this morning. What I didn't do uh, at this point for those in the first hour, and we'll get into this a little bit, let me just take a moment to uh, do a basic exegesis on these three points. When I wrote my first book, Building a Healthy Multi-Ethic Church, uh, I, I wasn't the first person to write a book on this subject. I'd become an aggregator, as it turned out, of the movement. Uh, but I certainly wasn't the first person to write a book on this, uh, uh, this subject, but I was really the first to define a very specific laser-like Um, exegetically sound, make an exegetically sound case from the New Testament uh, into this. And I I did it largely because uh, of some of the marginalization I saw, particularly white evangelicals give to our African-American brothers or missiologists or other people who would try to drive this message home and and the missive nature of some of that. So all that's to say is that I I, I looked at and I broke it down to these three things, that the New Testament church was indeed outside of Jerusalem, multi-ethnic Uh, It was envisioned by Christ on the night before he died, John 17. It was described for us in action at the church at Antioch, Acts 11, Acts 13, and ultimately it was prescribed by the Apostle Paul throughout his life and writings, but particularly you see this, well, you see it everywhere, really, Galatians, Romans, but particularly in my book, I break down the book of Ephesians. So let me just park here for a moment and walk you through some um, exegesis before we turn our attention to some of the core commitments and uh, promising practices for actually building a healthy multi-ethnic church. Christ first envisioned the multi-ethnic church on the night before he died. So you know the story, John chapter 17, right? Uh, it's his hour, his hour has come, foot washing, Judas is left to betray him, etc. cetera. And, and now Christ goes to prayer. John is there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know his words, we know what he prayed. And if you break that prayer down, you'll notice it's in three sections, the high priestly prayer of Christ. Verses two and three, uh, uh, specifically, he prays for himself. My hour has come, glorify me as I've glorified you on earth. And very specifically, he says, you sent me, code for Messiah, of course, the sent one, uh, to bring eternal life to all men. By the way, the word all in Koine Greek, do you know what it means? All. So it says bring all men, bring eternal life to all men. So this is the mission of Christ. Now, in verses 6 through 19, it's like a runner. You know, in the four-by-four runners in the track, they've got the baton, and they're running, they get into the zone, and then they pass the baton. That's what Jesus is doing in 6 through 19. So he's been running. The Father gave him the baton. He's been running with the baton. Bring eternal life to all men. Now he's going to pass it. And so he prays 6 through 19 uh, in chapter 17 for the disciples, right? So now they're going to run the race, and they've got to advance this message, et cetera. And he prays for them. Then he gets to verse 20, and he turns his attention to a second group. And he says in verse 20, and you can follow along if you have a Bible, he says this. He says, and now I want to pray not only for all of them, these people, meaning the disciples in the room at the moment. I'm sure he had some uh, other men and women in mind, but specific to the room, there's 11 men there. I don't know. I just want to pray for these, but he says this, I want to also pray for all those who come after them who believe in me through their word. So who is that? That's us. And if I say nothing else this afternoon, this ought to blow you away. On the night before Jesus died, he prayed for you and he prayed for me specifically. That ought to blow you away right there, right? And if you know that Jesus prayed on the night before he died for you, you certainly want to know what he prayed for you, right? I mean, if I knew that I was going to die tomorrow, by the way, the things coming out of my mouth today would be pretty significant, don't you think? I mean, I wouldn't be reminding my wife that trash day just changed from Tuesday to Thursday, so don't mess it up. you are got to take the trash up on Thursdays now. You know, somebody's got to do it. I won't be there, and the horse has got to be fed. And I wouldn't be thinking like that, right? I, the, the most significant things of my heart, my mind, my soul would be pouring out in those final hours. And that's the framework of this prayer. So in John 17, verse 23, when he says, and now I want to pray not just for the men in the room, I want to pray for everyone who comes after me, who believes in me through their word. He prayed for you and me. Don't you want to know he prayed three times in the next three verses? It's actually four times in Koine, four times in Spanish, but dumbing it down for all of us who speak and read English, three times he prayed one prayer and one prayer only that we would be one. I pray that they'd be one, verse 21, that they'd be one, verse 22. I pray that they would be perfected in unity. Verse twenty-three. Now, you have probably preached this, maybe even read it in the English before, and you might say, "Well, I know, I've, I've seen that." But, but if you don't do careful exegesis, and certainly anybody who hasn't had the privilege of studying the Greek, uh, you don't pick this up in the English. But in verse twenty-three, in that passage when he prays they be one, particularly there are two hina clauses. Maybe you remember that. Some of you went to seminary and studied Greek. There are two hina clauses. A hina clause is a purpose and a result clause. So it's an if-so-that proposition. Now, the force of a hin clause is this. It's it, 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 it like this. Like, let's just say, for instance, it was pouring rain outside. And I say, Andrew, if you go outside without an umbrella, you're going to get soaking wet, totally drenched, right? In that, in that proposition, what can I guarantee? I can guarantee if, he, if Andrew goes out without an umbrella and it's pouring rain, he'll be soaked. And we would all agree we can guarantee that result, right? What couldn't I guarantee in that equation? that Andrew will actually go outside without an umbrella, right? I can't guarantee that. But if he goes out with an umbrella, he'll get soaking wet. That's the force of a henna clause. And so when Christ says, I pray that they be one, he does so with two henna clauses in the Greek. And so he prays first that we would be one so that the world will know that you sent me. World means world. Sent is code for Messiah. This goes back to verses two and three. He's been sent to bring eternal life to all men. How will the world, how will people who are not Jewish, right? How will people who are not white, see what I'm saying? How will will everybody know that I'm that one? You know, from Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, everybody's looking for someone. Every culture, even the History Channel is looking for someone. There are aliens coming. They tell us that all the time. They're out there. Everybody's looking for someone. That promised one, that sent one, that Messiah. Who is he and how would you know? When diverse men and women will, will themselves to walk, work, and worship God together as one, the world, see, the world recognizes experientially, not just with words, but they see, they feel, they experience ginosko and Epignosco, that God is of the world. This is the one. If I be lifted up, I draw all men. When they see that, it draws all men to Jesus. So if we will be one, the world will know that you sent me. And then he says, if we will be one, can't guarantee that there'll be one, but if there'll be one, the world will not only know that you sent me, but that you love them. That was a radical prayer to a Jewish mind in 2000 2000 years ago, because the Jews thought that God's love was for them and it was wrath for everybody else, for the Gentiles, for the Romans. everybody's Everybody's gonna be blown away except us. God loves us, wrath for everyone else. That was the Jewish mindset. So when Christ prays this prayer on the night before he dies, He says, if we will be one, the world will not only recognize I'm that guy, all right? Jesus is that Messiah, that sent one, the one we've been waiting for, but the world will experience and know that God loves them, which goes back again to verses two and three, the mission of Christ. So on the night before Christ died, he delivered to the church, to us, the most effective means for reaching the world with the gospel. Why do I say it's the most effective means? Because it's the only one he gave in the moment. He didn't say, bring Billy Graham to your city. He didn't share share the four spiritual laws out at Galveston on the beach in the summer, right? Do evangelism explosion. He didn't say any of that stuff, although that's good. God bless all that work. It's worked and people get saved, but he didn't say that. He said, be one, and then the world will know God's love and believe." Christ envisioned the multi-ethnic church on the night before he died. Secondly, if I'm right about that, and I am, you'd expect to see that in the New Testament. Oh, yeah, it's a little joke for all four of you. Well, the bottom line is this. It's not only that Christ envisioned that Luke described it. We did talk some about this in the first hour. I, I understand it was taped. If you'd like to listen, or this is in my first book, Building a Healthy Multiethnic Church, The Sex of Jesus. But but essentially, to, to avoid repeating myself in the first hour, in the book of Acts, the model church of the New Testament is Antioch. And Luke describes the model church, what that vision is fleshed out, what it looks like. It's the church at Antioch. These are Jews and Gentiles willing themselves to walk work worship God together as one. Explosive growth happens there like it did at Jerusalem, but it's a different quality of growth. These are diverse people. This is the first church to send missionaries to the world willingly. This is the first church to take up a collection for the poor. And in Acts 11:26, Luke comments and he says this, and believers, disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. You would think Peter, James and John, you would expect them to be called Christians, weren't wouldn't you? But they weren't. Why? Because Jesus said in John 17 23, if they will be one, the world will know and believe. And that didn't happen in the homogeneous environment of Jerusalem. It happened in the multi-ethnic church and environment of Antioch, where Christ was seen in their midst and all men were being drawn unto him. By the way, at Pentecost, these were not diverse people. They're from diverse cultures, but they were essentially Jews in for the feast. So yes, they came from different cities, and yes, they spoke different languages, but they were not different people. They were Jewish, and that's very clear in the text. So we get that wrong, by the way. Antioch is a multi-ethnic church on mission for Christ. Send their best people. Not only that, but they have diverse leaders, as Acts 13.1 says. Economic diversity in the church of Macedonia. Luke builds a case in Acts And he says, what God envisioned in Matthew 28, Acts 1-8, let me tell you how that played out. Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. Not just in the sense of evangelism and discipleship, but the development of local churches that reflected the kingdom of God on earth for the sake of the gospel. Not only did Christ envision it, Luke described it, but ultimately Paul prescribes it, as you good theologian students, theology students understand, that's making a statement that this isn't just nice, it's necessary, it's not optional, it's biblical, and yes, I'm saying that. If you are a church planter, grower, developer, nowhere in the Bible are you allowed to plant. Nowhere is there biblical license, freedom, or mandate to plant a church focused on a single people group. It does not exist in the Bible. Contrary to the misapplication, misunderstanding of the homogeneous unit principle, which got mucked up in 1972 by a man named Peter Wagner, you do not have license, freedom, or mandate to plant a church focused on a single people group. It's not there in the Bible. You can do evangelism, discipleship, and leadership development among first-generation people, and that's all well and good, and Jesus did that, and that's the true application of the HUP. But when you cross the line to do a church, you're not allowed, so to speak, biblically to focus on a people group. You focus on a community, and in that community are all these different people. So the way we intentionally drive that church, the systems of our church, the way we walk, work, worship God, they're to focus on the community, not on a single people group. That's evangelism, that's discipleship. And you can do both and, by the way, and we'll maybe talk about that in a little bit. But we've got it the other way. And the homogeneous unit principle from 1972 was messed up. All that's to say is that Paul prescribes this in the Bible, in the book of Romans, Galatians, et cetera, but particularly in Ephesians. So in chapter one, you remember, he talks about our individual unity with God the Father through faith in Christ. And all the benefits they have, joint heirs, right? I'm blessed, redeemed, adopted, chosen, forgiven. All these things that happen to me marked them as the individual through my faith in Christ. And then in chapter two, he turns his attention. Now this is a letter to a local church and it's very clear, Acts 19, et cetera, as all the churches outside of Jerusalem were, these are Jews and Gentiles, men and women, et cetera, uh, wealthy and poor, work, uh, walking, working, worshiping God in the church of Ephesus. They're getting this letter from Paul. So, in chapter two verse eleven, he turns his attention from talking to the individual to talking to the collective, and more specifically, he says in verse two chapter two verse eleven, "Let me talk to you Gentiles for a moment. Let me just break away and talk. Paul does that by the way, a lot of times. chapter one of Romans, he starts talking to the Gentiles, then he talks to the Jews, so he'll talk to both audience at the same time he's talking collectively. So he does this in Ephesians two eleven he says, now "Let me talk to you Gentiles for a moment. You remember this passage, right? This is where he says, "Now remember how you were without hope." Uh, without faith, promises of God, you were called the uncircumcision. Remember all that passage, Ephesians 2? When we talk about Jew and Gentile, unless you're Jewish, and and sometimes I run into audience of people that are Jewish, you really, we as Americans particularly, don't really emote with feeling what was going on there. But in terms of our feeling, let me put it in context you can understand, because this is how the readers heard it when they were being read this letter. He said, let me talk to you all you black people for a moment. You remember how you were three-fifths human, bought and sold as slaves? Remember how the white people called you the N-word? And you had no hope, no promise, nothing in America. You remember that, black people? That's how they felt it. Because to call a Gentile the uncircumcised, is like calling an African-American the N-word. Same thing. And they were without hope and promise in the spiritual realm. And so this is how it would have felt. But then what does he say? But thanks be to God, through the blood of Jesus, right, this wall of enmity, which is essentially racism, has been broken down. The dividing wall has been broken down by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the two groups are now to be made what? One new man, one body, one temple in which the spirit of God is pleased to dwell. Sometimes people pray, boy, we got to pray. We we just got to break these walls down. I'm like here to tell you they've already been broken down. They've already been broken down through the blood of Jesus. We just got to walk in it. So he brings people together to walk, work, worship God together as one in a local church. And the spirit of God is pleased to dwell. So then he goes on, chapter three, he's going to pray for people, right? So let me pray for you. And then he's going to tell you how to do it. How do you walk, work, worship in one church? Differences, past experience, personality. How does that all work? He's going to tell us chapter four and on, right? But in three, he starts to pray and then he interrupts himself. Right, I I do that a lot. Right, I get it on a rabbit tree. He does that. So verse 2, remember the parenthetical statement in Ephesians 3? And he says, but hold off. Let me just remind you, I've already talked to you about this. I wrote a letter about this very subject. And if you're not picking it up right now in this letter, go back and read the first letter. Boy, I wish we had that letter. The entire letter was like building a healthy multi-having church, right? He says, but go back and read the letter. And you'll remember in this letter, I talked to you about the mystery of Christ. This mystery that people long to understand and know, know what it was about, but it's only been revealed, this mystery, in the latter days. Now, the casual reader of Scripture sees mystery of Christ, and they think, oh, adoption in Christ, atonement, redemption in Christ. That's not the mystery. In fact, he very specifically defines the mystery in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, as he does in Romans 1, as he does in Colossians 1, and he says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. Right? And essentially what that means is that they are to be one in the gospel. That means everybody gets saved through this powerful gospel. That they're one in the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is not just for the Jews. The gospel is not just for the Jews. And the local church is not just for the Jews. Now, we get the other two parts right, right? Gospels for everybody. Kingdom of God's for everybody. But we don't get that part right. And that's undermining our credibility today. The gospel, the kingdom of God, the local church is for everybody, not just for your people not just for my people. It's for everybody. And he goes on to explain, not only was this mystery given to you, but the administration, how do you do it? Verse nine. And he's going to tell us in chapter four. So then he prays for us. I see, here's the deal. I want you to understand the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of God's love. But if you, if you only go to a black church, maybe you've got the depth of God's love, but you don't have the height, the length, the width. See, you go to a white church, maybe we've got the height of God's love, but you don't have, it's like a prism. He wants us to experience the totality of who God is. All that love that we gain from our diversity and our unity, he wants us that. And so he prays that they would know the love of God, the height, the breadth, the length. By the way, earlier he said, so that, why should we one?" and how do you do this? So that the manifold wisdom of God will be displayed through the church. Do you know what the word, not a trick question, do you know what the word manifold means in the Greek? Multicolored. Look it up. Look it up. It means multicolored. This is what he's talking about. And then he goes on, by the time he gets to the end of Ephesians 3, he says, and by the way, the height, the breadth, the length of God's love, a picture of that, my good friend Bruce, I'm sure you know, Sung Cha Ra, he talks about the salad, right? So, so he, like, he's saying, hey, we want to taste the lettuce and the tomato and the cucumber, we want to be one big salad because there's so much flavor in that and it makes the salad so good. But our good friend Sung Cha Ra says, but the American church over the last 50 years poured ranch sauce over the whole salad. So you put your fork in, you taste the lettuce, it, it tastes like ranch sauce. You put your fork in tomato, tastes like ranch sauce. The idea is get rid of the sauce to experience Ephesians 3, 10, 11, 12, the love of God. And he says at the end of that chapter, by the way, and what is God able to do exceedingly abundantly, far beyond what you could ever ask or imagine? Do you know how much money has been raised preaching that verse out of context? If everybody digs deep, give, we're going to do this campaign, God will do exceedingly beyond, has nothing to do with money or buildings or the size of your church. What God is able to do beyond what you could ever ask or imagine is make a black man and a white man two, man, two miles from Little Rock Central High walk, work, and worship God together as one in a local church. That is beyond what any of us can pull off. Yeah. So that's the context. So in chapter 4, right? He's going to tell you, now, how do you do this? How do you, how, do, how do you walk worthy of the calling? What is your calling? To be one in the church for the sake of the God. How do you do it? you got to be humble. you got to be patient with one another. You've got to be tolerant. That's not a good word today, and it means something different today than it did then, so let me use it there. You have to be tolerant with one another in love. Why? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is in all people, working through all people, and over all people. And by the way, you have different gifts. You have to learn those gifts. And husbands got to be one with their wives and children and slaves with their masters, the economic piece and, and all that. And he gets to Ephesians 6. Of all the places Paul could have put teaching on, on a spiritual warfare. Why do you think he puts it at the end of a book devoted to the unity of the church and the sake of the gospel? Because this flies in the very face of the devil. This is spiritual warfare. When you preach and lead out on a message of unity and diversity in the local church for the sake of the gospel, you are coming against the devil's A game. The devil's A game is division. And when you speak unity, man, Get ready for persecution. By the way, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. It's the only one you're identified with someone. Every beatitude, you get something for what you do. The mourn get comforted. The meek, inherit the earth. One, be a peacemaker. You get identified as a child of God. No closer you can be to Jesus than being a peacemaker on earth. And guess what the next three verses speak of? What it was on his mind, persecution. So Paul talks about this armor of God. So you're going to resist the schemes of the devil because, see, he's trying to divide you along the lines of flesh and blood the color of your skin, your culture of heritage. And we play right into that. But collectively, you, plural, it really should read y'all. Collectively, put on the church. You have to collectively put on the armor of God to resist those schemes of the devil, right? To stand firm against those schemes. And at the end of chapter six, you know, he says, now pray for me, that boldness will be given me in declaring this message. Casual reader of scripture thinks he's talking about the gospel, nuh not the capital G. He's talking about his gospel, Romans 16, 25, the gospel of Gentile inclusion. Pray for me that boldness will be given me in declaring this message. Many people erroneously think that Paul gave his life for the gospel, the capital G gospel. Well, that's certainly true, but not specifically. Specifically, he did not give his life. He didn't end up in a Roman prison. He didn't get executed. He didn't get run out of town, beaten, stoned, et cetera, for preaching Jesus. You know what he got stoned, beaten, ended up in a Roman prison for preaching and what he lost his life for specifically? preaching the gospel of Gentile inclusion. They didn't have a problem thinking about Jesus back then. They had a problem with Gentile inclusion. Ain't no other people, no blacks coming to my church. Are you kidding me? So when he shows up, Acts 21, remember, he goes to the temple, and they throw a riot because they think he brought a black guy into a white church. You understand what I'm saying? The different courts, that's how it felt. They thought he brought a Greek into the Jewish court. So a riot erupts. Acts 22, he has to tell his story. He tells his whole story. Gets to verse 21 and he says, and then he said to me, get up and go for I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. And you know what the very next verse says, Acts twenty two twenty two. And they listened to him. Who's the they? The Jews. They listened to him up until this statement. And then they said, away with him, he is not fit to live. Yes, in a general sense, Paul gave his life for the capital G gospel, the preaching of Jesus, but in a very specific sense, he gave his life for the other. He gave his life for Gentile inclusion in the gospel, in the kingdom of God, and very specifically in the local church, as a credible witness of God's love for all people in a diverse society. Well, if you understand this and you buy into this theologically, and I encourage you, if you don't, to study the New Testament. My book will help get you in the first one, Building a Healthy Multimeter. You need to own this in your belly. I'm not here, in other words, preaching this message because Barack Obama is biracial and somehow represents the changing face of America, not because of changing demographics that tell us one in two children under the age of five are people of color today, minorities, one in two under 18 by 20, uh, 18-year-olds by 18 by 2018, 43% of millennials. The most diverse generation in American history by 2042, one in two people not white. I mean, those are all changing demographics. Houston, incredibly the most diverse city, or certainly in the top three in the entire country. That's not why I'm here preaching this. That's all well and good. And it gives us the opportunity to execute on what we should have been living like for 2,000 years. And very specifically, for 50 in America, at least. Right? But that's not why I'm here. Not because Rodney King asked us all to get along. I'm here because this message is biblical, it is right. And it is the hope of the gospel in an increasingly diverse and cynical society. So if you understand that and you own it in your belly theologically, then you think, just like Paul in Ephesians 4 and 5 and early into 6, well, then how do we execute? What is the administration of that mystery? How do we execute and advance this in real practical terms in a local church? So a number of years ago, before my first book, I brought together people who were practitioners, researchers like George Yancey and others, and we had discussion for about a two-year period. I had the privilege of writing about that in my first book, so I didn't just make this stuff out of the air. This came from researchers and practitioners and and people that kind of put their collective knowledge and experience together and said, hey, there may be 20 things, 20 marks of a healthy multi ethnic church, but we know there's at least seven, and that became the seven core commitments of a healthy multi ethnic church. So moving from theology to practice, let's talk about that. Here's the first one, embrace dependence. The first of seven core commitments, embrace dependence. Essentially what this means is, as we talked about in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, this is a work of God and the Holy Spirit that you and I cannot otherwise pull off through human means, ingenuity, and methods. In other words, maybe in some of the denominations you're a part of or networks, which there's nothing necessarily wrong about that, but you go and, 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 they, and they give you a manual. Say, here's, follow these 69 steps. Here's the checkbox. Here's the line. Follow these. Plant your church. And here's how you can plant a successful church. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You ever seen one of those manuals? Yeah? I was, pre, I was speaking about this one time in Atlanta. And a guy raised his hand. He goes, 299. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I got the book in my car. 299 steps. Here's how you plant a successful church. At my book table, there is no manual. Right? because this is a work of God and the Holy Spirit that you can't somehow just muscle up and get it done by checking the list. It's the same thing when the apostles tried to cast out the demons, they couldn't get it done. He goes, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. This is a different kind, if you will, right? Right? Now, as I said, I think I said it here, you know how it is when you're talking multiple services, David, you forget, did I say that to that group or whatever? But the point is, is that, um, that, that all of us collectively, we all as church planners, as church pastors, every church has a common set of problems, challenges to overcome common to all of us. But again, when you add into the milieu, the mix of race, class, cultural division, et cetera, it's an entirely different set of landmines. And that's what makes it a unique kind. And the way you approach the common set of challenges is not the way you approach this. It takes prayer, patience, and persistence. And that's how we position ourselves for dependence. We have to look to God. It's something that he can do. We can't just muscle it up and get it done. And this is the first thing, to own it in your belly as a calling. By the way, I would tell you, if you're called to be a pastor, you're called to plant or grow or develop a multi-ethnic church. I don't think it's, it's inseparable. But the personal calling, the theology, but then you have to recognize how dependent we are on God, how you get on your knees, how you lay down your life, how you put aside power, privilege, and position to embrace and see what God can do. So this is what it means to embrace dependence. By the way, just a, just a side note, this entire country is at odds, and the American way of life is like this, right? It teaches independence, whereas the Bible teaches dependence. And this entire country right now is fighting either to get or to maintain power, position, and privilege. Think about that. This entire country is fighting to either get or to maintain power, position, and privilege. But what did Paul tell us in Philippians 2? Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That he did not regard his power, his position, and his privilege as something to hold on to and keep for himself at the expense of others. What did he do? He emptied himself of that and he came down and he came down to give us power, to give us position, to give us, he leveraged that so that we could have it. That's what makes us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So instead of fighting to maintain your power, position, privilege, trying to fight to get it, why don't you lay it down and have this attitude in you, which is also in Christ Jesus because when you lay it down, you embrace dependence and he will lift you up and your church and your message. The second core commitment is take intentional steps. Now you say, now wait a second, Mark. You just went off about how you can't do this on your own. You can't muscle it up. You can't do it. It's all God. It's the work of God and the Holy Spirit. So now you're telling me I got to work out? I'm like, yes, I'm telling you that too. I say, well, who, get, who saves people, right? Well, that kind of messes you up, right? Well, God saves people. Yeah, but he didn't write John 3.16 on the Rocky Mountains, right? In the sovereignty of God, he says, you go and you tell people. And so we participate in the salvation of souls. I didn't set up that way. You didn't. That's the way he set it up. Does God need us? No. Did he choose to use us? Yes. So it's kind of a both and, right? I don't know how God is 100% man, 100% uh, uh, God, Jesus, right? I don't know. I don't know how there's one in three. I don't understand. Some of that's mystery, right? In the same way here, this is all God, but it's all us at the same time. You can't you have to be intentional in the pursuit of these churches or they just don't arise. They don't happen, right? I mean, you can't just sit around in your office all day and pray, oh, God, send me a black man. I mean, you can't do that, you know? We have to be intentional. So we have to take intentional steps. It's the same thing when people say, isn't the gospel enough? Yes, if we lived it, if we walked it, if we preached a holistic gospel, the gospel would be enough. But it's not, we have to be intentional in the way we've lived it out. It's not so what does that mean? Well, there's a couple different things. Real quick, just bullet points. First, one of the intentional steps you've got to take, I've already preached through, so let me just give it to you, or talked about, and I have an ebook online about this, by the way, should pastors accept or reject the homogeneous unit principle. Uh, uh, but all that's to say is that we have to reject how you've been taught, how we've been taught the homogeneous unit principle, which, by the way, in its purest sense, taught by Donald McGavern, means people come to Christ fastest, when they don't have to jump through linguistic hurdles, cultural barriers. People come to Christ fastest. Six years later, McGavern started teaching, I'm sorry, Peter Wagner, you know how he taught it? The church grows fastest when it's homogeneous. Do you see the subtle shift? It's an evangel- McGavern told Martin Marty, it's an evangelistic principle, it's a disciple. But Wagner made it about the church and essentially gave all the white pastors a reason, seemingly biblical, to plant, grow, and develop large churches full of people who look just like them in the suburbs, etc and seemingly justified that. And now we're where we're today, 86.3% of segregation, a, 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 a gospel that's not believable, it's not credible, because we don't walk, work, worship God together as one. All that's to say, what's an intentional step you've got to take? You have to reject the homogeneous unit principle, as we've been erroneously taught it, for church planning, growth, and development. You don't target people. It's not a biblical question. You target communities. And communities have all kinds of people. In it. And by the way, in case I forget to say it, when we do church planning, we typically are taught to look at statistics. Okay, what's your area? Hey, I'm in the 72204 zip code. Well, you go to the demographics, you look at the statistics, you get them. And all that's based on what? Who lives in the community. I suggest it's not just that. We should broaden our understanding of a neighborhood because it's not just who lives in it. It's who does life in it. So I go to an area in the country and say, hey, uh, hey, it's 96% white. What am I supposed to do? Say, well, do you have a Walmart? you have a Costco? Yeah, is it 96% white? Are the workers nice? Who mows your yards? Is it nice? No, it's not. No, who does construction? No, it's that. Well, see, people will cross barriers for economic incentive. I guess I'm just foolish enough to believe they'll cross it for love. So a neighborhood and our target areas shouldn't just be confined to who lives there. It's who does life there. And in that sense, you target a neighborhood. So we reject the homogeneous unit principle for church planning, growth, and development. We apply it to evangelism, discipleship, and leadership development. And you can do it both in in a healthy, multi ethnic church. You can have homogeneous cells focused on evangelism, discipleship, leadership, development, but not crossing the line to be a church. And the second thing is what I told Rick Warren six years ago. He said, Mark, what's the one thing? You remember that movie City Slickers? What's the one thing? You know, like cut to the chase. Rick Warren, you guys might know, right? Cut to the chase. Give it to me straight. What's the one thing I got to do and to be intentional? 50% of our neighborhood's are Hispanic now, he told me. I got to change things. That's how you see his diversifying staff and everything. It's all because of all this. I said to him, uh, because of the neighborhood's changing, some of the principles he's learned, I said to him this, you've got to be intentional in this regard. You have to reject assimilation and embrace accommodation. You have to understand the difference between assimilation and accommodation. Now, what is assimilation? I have absolutely no doubt that in the majority of churches around this country, when you approach them, the ushers, the greeters, people at the door, the pastor, the staff, every one of them, I, virtually all, I'm sure there's some racist churches, but by and large, I think it's a pretty safe assumption that most churches would say, we welcome anyone here. We don't turn anybody away. We welcome anyone to be a part of our fellowship. Wouldn't you agree with me? And, and they really mean that. They really sincerely mean that. But what I found is they haven't thought deeply about what it is they mean when they make that statement. Because what people really mean is we'll welcome anyone as long as they like it the way we do things. So, so if you, and again, I'm white background, white church, I'm not picking on whites. I could say Koreans, blacks, I could use anyone. I'll, in fact, I'll use black just so I'm not picking on white people. All right. Can I just do that? So you go to a black church, you got a white guy. I have a friend. He passed the largest black church in Arkansas. I said, Mark, he goes, white people, I know they watch my TV show. We know that from demographics. They won't come be members of my church. I had a Hispanic friend. He stood up. I was with Ed Stetzer. We on a panel. He's like, I just want to know, he's a Hispanic guy, when the white people are going to follow my leadership. I got white people saying the same thing. I tell them all the same. White, black, Hispanic, Asian, doesn't matter. As long as you're trying to assimilate people, nobody's coming like that. So what does assimilation mean? Essentially, check your culture at the door. Let me take you by the hand. You're a black church, black church leader. You got a white guy. Let me show you how we preach. Let me show you how the music works. Let me show you how our children's ministry works. Let me show you the color of carpets. and And as long as you, the white guy, the minority in that situation, you with me? In that situation, in a black church, he's the minority. As long as the minority likes it the way the majority culture does, they say, hey, we're one big happy family. I could reverse it with white people. See what I'm saying? You take the black person, Hispanic, as long as they like it the way the dominant culture of that particular church. could be a Korean-dominant, black-dominant, white. As long as the way we like it, we're a big happy family. But what happens if you're a white guy, for instance, and a black woman comes to you and says, you know if we started mixing in some gospel music every now and then on stage, I bet we could attract more African Americans. Now, that's not the only reason African-Americans go to church, and I don't want to be pejorative or condescending, but of course it's a part of heritage of the black church and gospel music, et cetera, rich heritage, by the way. So if you're a white pastor in that moment, what would you say, right? I'm white. I got a lot of white friends. I've been in ministry 34 years. I know what a lot of my buddies would say, hey, oh, man, I love a little Israel every now and then. I turn on Fred, I get a little Fred Hammond going, you know, I, I do a little bit of that stuff in my car, you know, but, but I mean, come on, we got Dave on the guitar here. And I mean, we don't want to be on authentic. I mean, you can't put Dave doing gospel; it would just be on authentic. But you know what? I got a buddy up the street, Kevin Kelly at Second Baptist. They got an amazing gospel choir. What did you just tell that one? You didn't mean to, you weren't trying to, you thought you were actually connecting and being helpful, but you sent a subtle signal, Right. your kind is better off there. And that's how it's received. So everybody wants diversity by assimilation. That is not how you build a healthy multi-ethnic church. You do it through accommodation. And it's the exact opposite. So rather than someone, the minority, if you will, in a dominant culture of the church, not an all-white church, again, the dominant culture of a particular church, you don't ask them to check their culture. door. You change in form and function. So in our church, when that happened, and it really did, like 12 years ago, so we started mixing in gospel music. And sure enough, African-Americans started to come a little bit more. Not only because of that, but it became receptive. It's, it's sending a message that, that we, we, we understand. We want, you, we want your people to be part of our people. We're all we here. Right? And so we changed our, funct- our form. So we just didn't do one style. We started integrating different styles. We actually hired an African-American on staff at the time. I had an African-American teaching pastor, Hispanics, but then we actually empowered a gospel leader as part of our worship team to to diversify our music. Nowhere in the Bible does it say guitar B3, right? So we have freedom. And why is it one or the other? Make it all. So this is when we got a tomato. Bring the tomato into the salad. Don't pour the sauce off it. Bring the tomato in. Change your forms at at the structural level. That's how you welcome the other, and that's how you build a healthy, multi-ethnic church. Second intentional step you can take. A third one is empower diverse leaders. It's like, duh, you can't have a healthy, multi-ethnic church without a healthy, multi-ethnic leadership team, both in paid, elder, deacon, staff, uh, volunteer levels. You've got to diversify your leadership intentionally. This is seen in Acts 13.1. Paul tells you in the greatest church of the New Testament, in the church at Antioch, he lists the five leaders. He goes, let me tell you the staff at Antioch, and he lists them not only by name, but by their ethnicity. Now, Paul and Barnabas, he didn't in Acts 13, because he already did in Acts 4 and Acts 9. Paul is from Asia Minor. Uh, Barnabas is from the Mediterranean, from Cyprus. But then he talks about Simeon, who uh, was called, uh, what am I getting? Uh, Lucius of Cyrene, North Africa. Simeon, who was called Niger, heart of Africa. Forty percent, by the way, of the pastoral team of the greatest church in the New Testament was from Africa. One was from Asia Minor, one was from the Middle East, and one was from the Mediterranean a diverse leadership. And that, by the way, is called indirect prescription for those of you who do exegesis. In other words, the readers of the, of the letter at the time, when they read that, they understood what he was saying. Multi-ethnic church, they wouldn't use that term. But multi-ethnic church, multi-ethnic leadership, Acts 13, 1. So you empower diverse leaders. Now, that friend of mine who was an African-American, the largest church, he told me when I w- went to him for advice and encouragement and prayer and covering before I even launched my church, he said, now Mark, I love what you're talking about, but let me caution you. He said, you're going to, and I came again from a white church of 5,000 in the suburbs. He said, you're going to be so excited. You're going to hire an African-American to be your worship leader. And that's great and that's fine. But he said, but you need to realize that if that's all you do, you could subtly be saying to the black community, you're good enough to entertain us. And he said, and then you, you hire an African-American children's pastor or minority for pa- children, you're good enough to nanny our kids. He said that. And I already knew what it felt like when everybody was janitors, right? People of color are all janitors for a big one. So he talked about the pulpit, the elder team, sharing authority and responsibility and, and co-leading. In, in, out of your gifting, but partners in the ministry. And we followed it ever since. Great advice. So I'm not just talking about getting... Token people on your staff. That's a part of it. Getting people to join staff, leadership. But ultimately in the pulpit, at the leadership level, speaking into this. And by the way, why does the best man or woman for the job always look like you? We looked all over America for a singles pastor. And here he is, white guy. I was in a church that hired over 100 people in eight years. And and in a town of 43% African Americans, probably probably 5% Hispanic at the time, In that town, of over 100 people hired on staff, only two were African-American. One was a part-time choir director. He lasted three months. And the other one lasted for a number of years. She was a secretary in the children's ministry. I taught at Phoenix Seminary last week. I taught a doctoral class on some of these things uh, to to guys at seminary, a one-off class and a doctoral level. And and I went down the hall at Phoenix Seminary. Daryl Delostate is a president. He's a great friend of mine. I hung out with Wayne Grudem a little bit. I'd never met him before. Took a selfie. Said, I know him. Uh, I'm teaching in one room, he's there. I thought that means something. I don't know what it means, but it meant something. So my, my young guys on staff, my gospel guys, they loved it, you know, but, but anyway, uh, I'm a Phoenix Center. I go down this hallway and there's pictures on this hall. There's probably 12 pictures, big pictures in frames. I promise you I'm not making this up. I brought the whole class out there at a certain point. I said, walk down this hall in silence and tell me what you see. Of the 12 pictures on the wall, I promise you I'm not lying, nine of the pictures were white men with Bibles or in some way like this, microphone on, preaching, nine pictures were white men with Bibles and or preaching and authority of a church. Two were women teaching children, and one was a black guy on a keyboard. Think about that. Token adjustments don't cut it. What, what does that say? What does that say you're a black person, a Korean person, whatever, walking down the hall? What does that say to you? How come every doll in your nursery is white? See what I'm saying? How come every picture of Jesus is white? We don't think like that, but we should. And you think like that because of the fourth commitment. You develop cross-cultural relationships. By the way, that curriculum, eight-week daily devotion, selling like hotcakes, it is a Christ-centered, biblical, daily devotional, small group curriculum that will jumpstart this conversation in a healthy way in your church. It's Christ-centered diversity training. But we have to develop cross-cultural relationships, because, and here's why, because transparency and trust is not a commodity that's easily assumed in a room full of people like you. And that takes time, and we don't like that. It takes time to sit with people, time to listen, time to humble yourself in a posture as a learner and gain relationship with people so you gain understanding. I'm gonna move along a little quick. A fifth one, from those relationships come per- the pursuit of cross-cultural competence, because when I have relationships with people, like, for instance, in my church and a lot of Hispanics, I know David's got like over 2,000 Hispanics in church. When, when you are, have relationships, and not just in terms of authority, a pastor, whatever, but just real relationships. They've been in your home. They eat at your house. You know their kids. You, and you have relationships with people not like you. Let's just take Hispanics. So you turn on Fox News, and it's like, build a wall, border security. Hey, I'm all for border security. I've been for that for a long time. But, as, but I also know that just building a wall doesn't get it done because I know people, Marta and Alejandro and, and the people that are affected by decisions like that. So yeah, border security, but what about what about this? We got to do it both and. But so often it's the rhetoric of this with the, the marginalized get forgotten. 10 years ago we started immigration counseling our church. We've helped over 8,000 people in 10 years. We were just featured in the Daily Beast with Samuel Rodriguez and said, "Little thing, we charge 35 bucks." The lawyers charge 350, 500. So we got involved 10 years ago on this issue, try to get people's status right, etc. But the point is, when you have real relationships with people, you don't just listen to the rhetoric. Those are real lives. And Divided by Faith, written by Michael Emerson in 2000, showed that the majority of Christians formed their relationships with people they go to church with. So since most of the churches are segregated, Black, people have, black Christians have friends with black Christians. That's who's eating your house, hanging out. Whites the same way, Hispanics, Koreans. We're all hanging around each other, and therefore, we really don't know one another. Therefore, we don't care for one another. Therefore, we don't get invested in real systemic ways that brings change to communities, and the status quo is maintained. So, as I said in the first hour, you will never, ever dismantle systemic racism and segregation in society until we first dismantle it in the church no hope. And we do that by walking, working, worshiping God together as one, building real relationships in real community with people who are not like us. And that leads us to cross-cultural competence. We gain some understanding, the ability to flow seamlessly in and out of culture and gain competence uh, from learning. Again, just for sake of time, let me just uh, move on. But competence is, 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 is that which gives me intelligence, cultural intelligence. We went to our deaf people, for instance. And we said, how are we doing with our deaf people? And we thought we were doing great. They go, not very well. Like, what? We thought we were doing fine. They said, well, think about it. You got us sitting here. You got an interpreter here. You're preaching here, and you got two side screens. Any of your churches look like that with deaf people? I don't know. We thought we were doing fine. They said, we're here with our eyes. When you put something on the screen, we got to look in three different directions. We get lost. We have a fourth grade education. That's the average on a deaf person. We didn't know that. So what do we do? Deaf people here, interpreter here, bought a big screen TV, aligned it with a pulpit. They were so appreciative. They said, at a certain point, we were in this big 80,000-square-foot Walmart, no walls. They said, you know when the children get up in the distance and they move from one area to the other? That's like a bunch of hearing people screaming. We get sidetracked. We can't get back on track. I had no idea. So we pipe and draped. We bought pipe and draped, put curtains there. The kids went behind the curtains. The deaf people never saw in Pursuit of cross-cultural competence. And you don't wait for them to come to you. You go to them because that's what Christ did to us in Philippians 2. Not only pursue cross-cultural confidence, we promote a spirit of inclusion, right? Simple little things, simple little things. You can see that's our old Walmart. We had all these flags. If you got saved in our church or you're from a different country, we put your flag. We brought you up front, gave you a flag, hung it in the ceiling. I can't tell you how many people, even if they weren't, they were a visitor of the church and their flag wasn't there, what that meant to them. I can't tell you the stories about that. Simple things. When we had a bulletin for the first time, we're a bilingual church, so it's English and Spanish. So somebody, we had an English bulletin, Spanish bulletin. First time we ever had bulletins. So somebody put them out on tables on a Sunday morning, and they put the English bulletins here and the Spanish bulletins here. And me and another girl on our staff, Inez, uh, from Nicaragua, walked by. We looked at each other and said, no, that's no good. Why? Because what does it say? Us, them. Right? So we put them all on the same table. So for many, many years in the Walmart, if you spoke English, you could end up with a Spanish bulletin or if you're Spanish, you could end up with an English bulletin because they're all on the same table. It caused a little confusion, but here's what we did. We chose to live with that problem, not this problem. Promote a spirit of inclusion. And lastly, mobilizing for impact. Mobilizing for impact. In other words, it's not merely about getting diverse people in a room, not just in your pews, in your pulpits, in the, diver- the, the leadership teams, all that, and, and, and it's somehow singing kumbaya, right? The idea is to mobilize for him immer- to leverage the unique power and the beauty of God that uniquely dwells when men and women walk, work, and worship God beyond the distinctions of this world that so often, to harness that power, that unity, that beauty, and turn it outward to bless the city to advance the common good, to lead people to Christ, to promote the greater unity like you're doing here at HCPN, and ultimately to fulfill the Great Commission. It's ultimately about leveraging that and turning it outward, this power, this beauty, to impact our communities and advance the gospel in real and tangible ways. And that's what we spent some time talking about in the first hour is a concept called disruption. The book will come out May 7th with Thomas Nelson. And and with that, I wanted to add a few thoughts to that um, as we move to close here in the next five minutes or so. But to, to build a healthy multi-ethic church and all the things we're talking about uh, and what we talked about this morning, we have to think disruptively. And I won't go back and talk about what that is, but it's basically flipping the systems upside down because to affect systemic change. So not just sustaining innovation, but disruptive innovation. And that's gonna require us, if we're gonna be, a church, a advance a credible message of God's love in an increasingly diverse society, and what we've been doing is not working. You may think it is. Stats say it's not. We're dead in the water. We have to think differently. Here are just four quick disruptive thoughts to, to help you think. Here's the first one. Lament, corporate repentance, reconciliation, and justice. As we said in the first hour, these things are not peripheral to the gospel. They're intrinsic to the gospel. We don't need to be compartmentalizing the gospel and justice, and it's all part of the gospel, and we have to embrace and understand that. Secondly, we have to recognize, I put it here, there are two gospels in the book of Romans. You don't believe me? The gospel of Gentile inclusion, Romans 16.25, right? In 16.25, after he preached the whole message, which is Romans 1.16, a thesis restates it in Romans 16.25, he says, and now may diverse church at Rome, may God establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus. What is his gospel? We already talked about it. The gospel of Gentile inclusion. Paul would never preach the capital G gospel of redemption, never does, without simultaneously preaching the gospel of Gentile inclusion, what he calls his gospel. We gotta stop compartmental, we gotta do the same thing, because we're not believable just on one side. We preach half of it, if you will. I get it, capital G gospel, people going to save into heaven, but in our society, it's undermined when we don't not only preach, but execute on the gospel of Gentile inclusion, healthy multi-ethnic communities of faith. Thirdly, we have to understand that a biblical neighbor is not the person who lives next door to you. It's someone very different than you. So when Christ tells the story in Luke 10, and the lawyer comes up, how do you, how do you, how do you get in? How does this whole thing work, right? Luke is a disciple of Paul. He tells the story. It's not told the story of the Good Samaritan to say, hey, when people are down and out, help them. Jesus tells the story to answer a question. The question is, who is my neighbor? It's not the Jew. That's the point of the story. It's not If anybody's gonna stop, it's gonna be the, the, the pastor, if you will, the priest. But Dr. Martin Luther King, maybe you know this, on the night before he died, he preached this passage. And he he gives some explanation. Well, maybe the priest didn't stop because he wanted to keep himself holy. Okay, I'll give him that. Maybe he didn't want to stop. It's a bloody pass, dangerous road. Dr. King, Coretta Scott, they'd been there. So he says, maybe that's why. Then then comes along the deacon, right? The the Levite. So if the priest doesn't stop, the deacon's going to stop, right? But he doesn't stop. Well, maybe, Dr. King says, he thinks it's a ruse, like it's a dangerous pass, it's a bloody pass, and maybe he's just playing dead, and if you go help him out, people are gonna get jumped. So maybe he's a little fearful, it's like a ruse, right? Dr. King says that. But at the end of the day, Dr. King points this out about those two people, he says, ultimately they don't stop for one reason, because they ask themselves this question, if I stop, what will happen to me? But then comes that hated Samaritan, and I won't preach the story, you know it. But it's the Samaritan, someone very different, someone who is hated for 722 years by the Jews at the time of Christ, right? All that stuff, the mixed blood, the mixed religion, everything that goes to being Samaritan, it's that guy who stops. And Dr. King says he stops for a fundamentally different reason. Whereas the priest and the Levite asked themselves, if I stop, what happens to me? That man stopped because he asked and answered this question, if I don't stop, what will happen to him? When your church is a reflection of the community, when it's healthy and multi-ethic, economically diverse, let me just tell you this. Mission isn't a program. It is who you are. And lastly, we have to understand this and put away this notion that, or recognize, I should say, that in the future, breadth of influence, breadth of influence, not homogeneous size, will become a more accurate measure of local church effectiveness in advancing the kingdom of God. Not your size, but the breadth of your influence. I learned this about three, four years into my church plan. I had 100, 150 people. And, and I came from this huge church, great church, all that stuff was well. But, but trying to move to, to a close quickly, I mean, within three or four years, we were featured in Christianity Today. The mayor asked me to be on a board. I got on, they asked me to be on the Racial Cultural Diversity Commission. All this stuff, attention was coming locally and nationally. I had 150 people. We didn't own a pot to pee in, as they say in the South, Right? We had nothing. And, and, I, and I thought, well, the pastors of the church I came from, they weren't on city boards, and they weren't in the middle. of. And, and I wondered, like, what is that? Like, I wasn't saying it from an arrogant standpoint. I just didn't understand it. Because you would think the large church and the big church, that they would be on boards, and they would have it. And, and 5,000 people in Little Rock, hey, that's a lot of people. And that has it cast a big shadow. But we were local and national attention. I said, what is that? And that's when I realized that a city's like a pie. So let's say it's got 12 slices in this pizza, right, a little pizza pie. Well, 5,000 white people, re- Republican suburbanites, etc. when they get out at church on a Sunday morning, yeah, it's a lot of bodies, but they largely flow into just two or three slices of the pie. Why? Because they live in the same neighborhoods, work in the same industries, run in the same social circles. Kids go to the same private schools. You see what I'm saying? Vacation in the same spot. So yeah, it's a ton of people into a certain slice. My 150 people, my homeless people went back across the creek. My service workers went back to McDonald's and the hotel industry. The U.S. senator went back to Washington and everything in between. And I realized that though we were just 150 people, we weren't just going into two or three slides. We're going into like seven, eight, nine slides of the pie. And we had breadth of influence. In the future, it's not homogeneous size. It's breadth of influence that wins the day. If it was about size and speed, Jesus was a horrible failure. He didn't fail. We don't understand it. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jew, the Jew, the weak, the weak. He's not saying plant churches on all these people. He's saying, I want to win some from every group. Why? Because you win some from every group, the message spreads. Your influence grows. So it's about breadth of influence. And the more diverse your church is, and I'm talking healthy now, but the greater your diversity, the greater your influence. And I found in my city, i got churches 10 times my size that we have as much, if, in fact, we have way more influence. I don't want to take the time. It sounds like I'm bragging, but I've learned this. It's not something I did. I saw this, and I see this happening for the American church. So it's not size. It's breadth of influence. Well, closing up, this is the stool we talked about, disruption. We'll talk about how it's, I'm not going to talk now, but in the book, how it's not just preaching a spiritual message, but it's activating in terms of social justice and economic or financial disruption, creating churches that reflect their communities uh, creating umbrella nonprofits as sisters in the same house to advance justice, uh, focus on a specific community, uh, get grant funding, local church involvement, do way more than your budget could otherwise sustain. And lastly, disrupting economics, thinking smart about making money in the church, leveraging assets, leveraging assets to create a for-profit ministry that helps fund mission but do it in a way that blesses the community. So it's not gentrification because we're not doing things with excellence and displacing we're doing things with excellence that benefits the community and making money in the process. Because if the government takes away your tax ID or tax ID and, and, and nonprofit status, thousands of churches will go out of business, pastors are gonna lose their job, tithes and offerings go down. The way of the future is not sustained. The American church will not be sustained in the future by tithes and offerings alone. You can't be. You have to develop multiple streams of income. You have to think smart financially and do it in a way that helps to create jobs, generate tax revenue, lower crime, repurpose abandoned property. If you're a church planner, I encourage you, don't go buy land and build buildings, take over abandoned property and manifest physical redemption. You you bring redemption to a community like that, you don't have to preach it, they get it. Well, all that's to say, three rules of inclusion, don't make it difficult for others to belong, Acts 15. Don't attend to some over others based on race or ethnicity, and of course, as James taught us, don't extend privilege to some over others based on class or status it's not either that your church is or not biblical in this regard it's corporate sanctification that's a pursuit where are you on an imaginary continuum and what's the next step forward for this from season to season what do you understand biblically philosophically what can you do practically when can you do it realistically inch your way forward corporately towards the vision of revelation 7 9 the last thing you want to do is split a church in the name of unity and that's what you'll do if you go too fast in that. What is God doing? Not in our day gonna use the church to heal the race problems, but rather he's using race to heal the church. Race to heal the church. I think I hit a button right there. Can you put that slide back up? Or maybe I lost it. But he's gonna use, Chris Rice said in his book, I've become convinced that God is not interested in using the church to heal race problems, but rather God is gonna use race to heal the church. And why I say that, resources over here uh, books that are available, as mentioned, a small group curriculum, The Theology, Core Commitments in Building a Healthy Multithelic Church, Leading, if you're already about. And take this address down and look at it later, mosaics.info. Our network is uh, started in 2004, myself, George Yancey. We, we help churches in all kinds of ways advance that mission, that continuum, inch your way forward. We do learning labs. we got our next learning lab is in Little Rock, March thir- 11th through 13th. You come spend two days under the hood. We do year-long intensives. They're like master's level courses, staff searching coaching. We have all kinds of products, if you will, to help you advance on this vision. It's been a true honor, seriously, to be with you today. I know it's a lot to drink, but I'm going to give you everything I know in the shortest amount of time I can. Thank you so much for having me. I'll be available, of course, here. We're going to do some more stuff Q&A later on this afternoon. God bless you. God bless your work, and thank you for having me today. (laughs)